You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back, friends. Today, I'm honored to introduce you to Gloria England. Gloria sadly lost her eldest son, Aaron, to a heroin overdose in 2007. Part of her grief journey was learning and giving back, helping others. Gloria has done this in many ways, through her book, Living in the Wake of Addiction, and founding her coaching business, Recovering You. She coaches, facilitates groups, and educates through trainings and workshops around grief, addiction, and recovery. Meet my new friend, Gloria. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Gloria, to the podcast. I'm thrilled you're here with us. Um, I have today a treat in this closet-to-closet experience with Gloria. Gloria England is a author of the book, Living in the Wake of Addiction. And before we dive into the book, because I would think that's probably later in your story, I wonder if you would be willing to introduce to the listeners who you are, and who your qualifier is for the disease of addiction. Okay. Well, my name is Gloria England. Um, I started my business, Recovering You, in, um, I think, about 10 years ago, in 2012. And I, I did that because um, my oldest son, Aaron, died of a heroin overdose in 2007. And after his death, and he, he was ill for almost 20 years, um, his last uh, drug of choice was um, opioids, opioids, heroin. Um, that was before a lot of pills had really come mm-hmm. um, in, into existence or, or use. And um, I have a master's degree in human development and psychology, and I really thought that I knew a lot about addiction, but I found out that I didn't know anything about it until after he died. As a way, I think, to deal with my grieving process, I just dove in and started reading everything that was the newest information that was out there about addiction. I started, continued to go to my Al-Anon meetings because I, I found that, you know, being around other people that understood addiction was really important to my my healing process. I want to take you back a little, if you will, let me um, and say, first of all, how sorry I am you lost your son. Thank you, Margaret. The reality of this disease being chronic, progressive, and potentially fatal is always hard for every family member to consider. I believe the majority of families I've worked with, and I'm curious of your experience because you've had a lot of experience working with families as well as your own personal experience. Many families have thought about the passing of their person many times before it ever happens. 
And I'm wondering if that was your experience. Did you find yourself thinking about that before he passed or were you always in the place of potential hope of, of recovery? No, I was always in the part of trying to prepare myself for that. You know, I got a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night, mom, I'm at the police station, mom, I'm stranded. I need a ride home. Mom, I'm in the hospital. You think you kind of prepare yourself for that time when they die because of all that you go through, but there's just absolutely no way you prepare yourself for anyone's death. Right. You just don't. Even if I, I would imagine if somebody was chronically ill and I was seeing them and caring for them for a long time and, and watching them die slowly in front of my eyes, I still don't think I'd be prepared for when they take their last breath. I agree. I've heard many family members say, though, I've planned their funeral thousands of times. I never got that far, but no, this might come as a shock to a lot of people, but I worried about Aaron because he was dealing drugs. So I worried about him getting killed in a drug deal more than I did about him overdosing. Mm. And I think that has a lot to do with my lack of knowledge of the danger of opioids at the time that he was alive, right? Mm -hmm. I saw him in withdrawal many times as he tried to get off. Uh, and I and he explained to me, you know, mom, you, very few people ever die from withdrawal from opioids, but alcohol use disorder is a totally different thing. If you try to quit cold turkey, it can be very life threatening. So, you know, he explained all that to me. So I I guess that maybe that's why I never worried about him overdosing, which is really weird. Well, it's it's interesting, Gloria, because you shared candidly that you worked in marketing um, you learned on the fly living with this disease in your son. And it sounds like you really deep dove into it as a way of coping with him passing. Yes. Everybody has a different grief journey. And that mm -hmm. was part of my grief journey was to, to dive in and learn everything because what was on my heart all the time, and it's the reason why I wrote the book, is that if I can just keep one family or one family member more informed than I was, so they know a little bit more about what this journey is like, then it was my hope that that would ease my suffering and ease my loss of Aaron when in fact it did not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, everybody does something different on their grief journey. And that's one thing I've, I've learned from, you know, doing these groups for 10 years. It's amazing the different ways that people learn to grow around their grief. And that's what I've seen people do is they, they don't get through it. They don't get over it. They don't put it aside. If they continue to live and function in the world, they learn to grow around their grief. And it's a different growing period every couple of years, every six months. I mean, it was 15 years for me on May 11th. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm still growing around that grief mm -hmm. in different ways. Mm -hmm. When you say you wrote the book to hope that someone would get something you wish you'd known or help that you wish you'd been given. Do you remember in the process of reflecting in the writing and what you gave to, because I've read it and, and it's wonderful and you give a lot of really good tips, tools, strategies along with your experience. Is there one that stands out that you wish you'd understood sooner or knew sooner or were given sooner as a tool for yourself? Absolutely. No question about it. I wish I would have known more about medication-assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. I wish I would have understood it as a tool rather than a Band-Aid. 
I just think I could have been more supportive of Aaron. He felt a lot of shame and stigma because he was on methadone off and on for several years. You know, when people talk about, what do you think about methadone? He said, it's life-saving. And there's just still, even to this day, I was part of an opioid summit via Zoom last night that was hosted by Ryan Hampton, who wrote American Fix. And they had a lot of stakeholders in the recovery community, including they had someone there uh, representing family recovery. And we discussed this. And one of the things that came up was still the stigma that is around methadone. The stigma is much more prevalent in the community of color. We've got this whole nother aspect now to look at about uh, Native Americans, people of color. Native Americans have a much higher um, overdose rate and death rate than white folks do. So there's a whole new area to look about how this has been stigmatized now in a completely different way than when my son died. Aaron passed in 07? Yes. In 07, methadone was the main medicated-assisted treatment, correct? Yes, it was. And Suboxone was available, but only if you were in treatment. And Aaron did, the last time he was in treatment, he did get on Suboxone. He said, oh, mom, this is so much better. He ended up in the hospital a couple of times with methadone because the liquid form of methadone was the only way that they would give it to him unless he was hospitalized and under the care of a physician. Then he would get the tablets and he could tell immediately that the tablets agreed with his digestive system much more than the liquid did. And we figured out it might've been the dye Mm. in the liquid because he had kind of a sensitive digestive system anyway. But when he was taking the Suboxone, the last time he was in treatment, he said, I just feel so much better on this mom. It seems like that it quells my cravings without making me as foggy as methadone did. seemed like when he got his cravings quelled with methadone, then he would be kind of dopey. Mm-hmm. But he he did very well on Suboxone. But then back then in 2007, when you were out of treatment, you had to find a doctor to prescribe you Suboxone. It was not covered by insurance. It was covered by insurance as long as you were in treatment. And at that time in the state of Minnesota, there were only seven physicians that were licensed to dispense Suboxone. And they had waiting lists of hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. And then the cost was eleven or twelve hundred dollars a month. Well, that was nothing that we we couldn't afford that. Right. So when someone says to you, "Well, that is a band aid," they're not sober. What's your feedback to that? Well, it's not any more than a band aid than somebody that takes insulin for diabetes and has to take it for the rest of life. I have dear friends and family members that have been on antidepressants for the rest of their life. It's all wrapped up in the stigma of addiction. Um, I know that mental illness gets stigmatized um, and also with medication. And to be honest with you, Margaret, I know it can be abused. And I know at times my son abused it. And I know at times when he was told to taper down, see, at the time that Aaron was taking methadone, they get him to an amount where he was stable, where his cravings weren't there and he could still function. Once in a while, he'd be a little dopey, but Basically, they get him stable. And then within a month of getting him stable, they'd start tapering him down again. Because mm. the idea was you're on this to get your cravings under control. And then we're going to taper you down. Well, he'd start tapering down and the cravings would come back. So he'd 
buy it on the street. They, they have a totally different way of dealing with it now. Mm-hmm. But the way that he was dealt with is you got to get off of it. Well, for somebody that's been using opioids for almost 10 years, you can't stop your cravings in a month. They're finding out a lot more now uh, about it. Not enough. I mean, my goodness, we need to spend so many dollars on research and brain and the body's response to medication-assisted treatment. And we're not there. We've got so far to go. Yeah, we've evolved. We've come a ways, but we've got a long way to go. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. I am incredibly excited to announce that Gloria and myself will be hosting a retreat at the Renewal Center in Center City, Minnesota, at the Hazelden Betty Ford campus. This retreat will be held from December 9th to 11th. Yes, I'm coming back to Minnesota in December. This retreat is called A Different Kind of Grief. Gloria and I invite anyone who has lost a loved one to the disease of addiction a minimum of six months ago to join us for a place for you to be seen, heard, and validated in your grief while building your community of support. To register, find the links in my show notes or call Peg or Georgia at the Renewal Center. The number is 1-800-262-4882. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. So when you also think about the things you've included, because I know you did a a nice job on a chapter on looking at the disease and not a moral stigma. And that, that journey for many people is a hard one because the behaviors of addiction look so immoral. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's easy to judge or appears to be, what else do you wish as a mom you had learned that you've shared with moms since? To number one, get educated. So you understand that just like what you said, Margaret, that their behavior is the disease. It is not them. They are not their disease. And to have compassion around that And to remind yourself over and over again that they are ill, they're erratic or disrespectful and negative behavior is about the disease. It's not about them. Learn to separate the person from the disease as early as you can. Remind them about who they really are when it's appropriate. When they do something that supports their recovery, praise them constantly. Look at what you've done. I knew you could do it. I was awful at that until the last three or four years of Aaron's. I would always point out what he wasn't doing right. You know, you missed this doctor's appointment. You didn't do this. I'm not proud of myself. But when I finally accepted that he could die from this, and that, again, was kind of like another one of those ideas that came down from above then I totally changed the way that I started responding to him. And that's why when he died, I am so grateful I did that because we died without any stuff between us. I mean, we're, we were pretty clear that we loved each other and respected e- where each other was on their own journey. And, and oh my goodness, Margaret, I 
deal with so many grief clients and people also who whose loved one are still alive where they're just tormented by things they wish they wouldn't have said or done, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that that's the other thing is to, if, if you're educated about the illness, then you can start to look at them as a seriously chronically ill person. And then how would you treat them if they were chronically ill with cancer or some other disease? Well, you'd treat them with compassion and you can still draw boundaries and have a compassionate relationship with your loved one. And that is one of the most baffling parts for many family members. How do I love them and show them compassion when they have a disease that will manipulate me any way it can? So what has been your experience in finding that balance of showing the love and holding boundaries against the disease? In my book, I give an example about I had three other sons, three other teenagers at home when Aaron was going through all of this. Two of them were stepsons. One was a birth son, but we were raising the stepsons. They lived with us all the time. You know, it was a pretty busy household. I had a home-based office. So a lot of times Aaron would call and ask me for something. And my initial response was always, oh my God, I got to help him now. Mm-hmm. And I started a meditation practice. And that allowed me to slow down enough to say, when he'd ask for something, instead of giving it a yes or no answer, which used to be my modus operandi, and and many times it was yes, when I I should have said no, right? I'd say, you know what? I'm right in the middle of something. I'm going to call you right back. And then I'd give me a time to say, now, is this going to support Aaron's recovery or his illness? Mm Mm-hmm. Is it going to interfere with my life or the life of the, of the kids if I do this? Or my, is it going to jeopardize my work if I do what he's, he's asking? So if I could answer all three of those questions, if he needed help immediately, if I could answer all three of those questions and say, no, 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 then I'd come back and say, sure, I can do that. Um, many times his requests were, you know, he didn't have a car. And so he had a lot of doctor's appointments he was going to and meetings he wanted to get to. And so when I could, I would give him a ride. But I also know he was very savvy with the bus line and he had a bus pass paid for him. So if he'd say, hey, mom, I overslept, I need to get to a meeting or I need to get to a doctor. So if he just overslept because he was too lazy to get up, I'd say, you know what? I'm sorry. I think you need to find your own way. Because it wasn't a matter of life or death, right? Right. There is the other facet, which we'll get into, that you incorporated someone to check in with who is a little more detached than you, which was your husband. Right. However, before that, because that's a great tool and strategy for many family members, because not only are you saying to everyone, I back myself away from the crisis reactivity moment. I ask questions that are about putting the oxygen mask on me first. Right. And then... I respond. So it's a three-step, actually, when you ask for help, too. So the conditioning that the disease does in our families is conditions us to live in this perpetual crisis alert. Oh, boy, does it ever. And we're reacting all day, every day, even if we're not asked. In our head, we're premeditating the reaction. So what I hear you did in your learning of meditation and those questions of self-reflection and then incorporating asking someone else for their input 
who you trusted to be less reactive, you got away from crisis reaction into responding from a place of self-care. Right. Or, or care for my family or what, what I was more comfortable with. Yeah, I was so lucky to have a husband who loves and loved Aaron like a son, but he, he had more distance than I did. You know, it was great. And he was self-employed. So most of the time, unless he was with the client, I could say, hey, Aaron's asking me to do this. What do you think? You know, and he, he'd give me his honest feedback. If I couldn't get a hold of him, I had a couple of sponsors and I had people in the program that I would call in and get feedback from. And this happened a couple of times. Mom, I'm on somebody else's phone. I got beat up at a bus stop and I need a ride to the emergency room. I dropped everything in. And took him, right? Whether he was high or not, I didn't care. I mean, he needed medical treatment, right? And and the other thing I I really learned, and this is boy, I didn't do any of this at all close to. Can we just put that on record, Gloria, so we don't have to say that over and over? I have never met (laughs) anyone who loves someone with the disease of addiction who's done this perfectly. But I really tried and worked at. And this was another thing Bob and I, his stepfather and my husband talked about a lot is basing our response on what is going on in Aaron's life right now. Like I said, if he was in need of medical help, whoever could get him to a doctor, you know, was going to do it. If he overslept, man, that's a totally different thing. So rather than just say, no, 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 no. And, you know, I could have said, you know, what were you doing at the bus stop? And, you know, it it doesn't matter what he was doing at the bus stop. In that one particular instance, he had no drugs on him. He was high. Police pulled him over, questioned him and beat him up because he was high. Gloria honors her son in helping others by sharing her truth and her story around Aaron his disease, and the effects on the family. We are humans and perfectly imperfect. I love the strategies Gloria shares for you on this journey. Come back for more with Gloria next week. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, Embrace Family Recovery. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.